get ready to start counting your riches and give it up for Career Bitches. Your resident Career Bitches. Your Girls Friday for advice, amazingly useful and amusing banter for anything and almost everything related to your career. They cut through the bullshit and all the workplace drama. Now give it up for these mamas. Welcome back to Career Bitches. I can't believe it's season three kicking off uh, today with my co-career bitch, Marcel, and yet another amazing guest. And I'm just, I'm just so excited to be back. I know. It's been a long time. It feels like we've been gone and people have asked, are you going to do another recording? Because we've been away for so long. But yes, here we are. We just take breaks during the year and have two seasons a year. Mm-hmm. So we're happy to have you back with us. It's called self-care, people. We, we take breaks. That's what we do. <laughs> yeah. You don't need a podcast every week for the entire year. There's plenty of other ones to listen to, even though ours is one of the best, of course. Yeah. Of course. We have other things to, to look at. And listen to. I mean, someday maybe you'll be able to look at us and we'll we'll record video. But, you know, we'll need to figure out our hair sitch first, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> that's, a whole, that's a whole other episode. But, hair, uh, yes. Marcel, do you want to introduce our guest for today before we jump into our weekly bitch? I do. We are so excited to have one of our favorite guests from last season, and I don't just mean our favorite, but one of our audience favorites, mm-hmm. Latsitsa Tomasic-Kickert, and she is a fantastic adaptive leadership coach, but she is an expert in so many things. So again, I can't, if you didn't listen last season, we'll put it in the show notes. You should listen to the first episode where we talked a lot about leadership and women in the workplace and balance and all that good stuff. And today we're going to dive into that a little bit more and specifically. Uh, but before that, and you want to introduce our bitch for the day? Yes. Well, so for this week's bitch, uh, we thought we would talk about some of the kind of invisible um, barriers to promotion in the workplace for women specifically. Um, and I think you know, there are so many, so, so many ways we could go with this. Um, I don't know. One that really sticks out for me still is, um, you know, being so bold as to get pregnant and decide there you're (laughs) gonna, you know, maybe need to take, um, some parental leave to do that. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it is, outrageous to me that there are still plenty of workplaces that don't even offer the very meager 16 weeks that, um, frankly is not enough. Anyone who's had kids knows, you know, 16 weeks just flies by. And, uh, many of us moms are not ready to give our kids up to a daycare at four months old. I mean, think about that. A lot of, a lot of infants are not even eating solid foods at four months. In case, you know, any of you listening are not aware, 
like six months is really the standard. And now I'm putting my doula hat on now. So <laughs> I promise not to go too far down that road, but that shit pisses me off. It, it does. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, it's depressing and it's, it makes, I mean, this is a major problem in the United States, of course, for the most part, <laughs> right? Because like in Europe, it's very different and countries typically give much longer maternity and paternity leave and even allow you to keep your job and then come back after a long period of time, sometimes a year or two or even more. Um, so that's super frustrating to me because I don't know how anyone thinks they're going to retain women in the workplace by not allowing them to come back to work or giving them proper leave. Um, something that's interesting in speaking of motherhood that has bothered me is I have heard from several single parents things they've been told about from by their male bosses. Let's just call it out as it is about, you know, questioning whether they're going to be able to handle the job. Do they have the proper help that they need as a single parent, as if they hadn't been handling it for 12, 15, 20 years of their career already, right? Like these are questions that should not be asked. Or um, and speaking of promotions, another was told, you know, that um, there were just evening things that she was expected to be at if she wanted to get ahead. And it's like, when did the workday become an evening requirement as well, unless you have a job that in the beginning is actually an evening or weekend type of job, right? That's not what she signed up for. Right. She shouldn't be asked to do that. She has other responsibilities and a life outside of it, other things she has to take care of, children and other things. Those kind of things are just so unquestionably wrong and deep in the American culture, especially, I think, uh, and it really bothers me to no end. Yeah. I mean, it's also about boundaries, right? Like we should be promoting healthy workplace boundaries, not, um, not discouraging them. And I do think that, you know, this, the younger generation, like the, even the younger than the millennials, which are now kind of like aging out of their young person status, which I don't know that whatever that blows my mind, but the younger, younger, like the Gen Zers, like the, the newest people to our workforce, the, the guys who, guys and girls who are in their, their mid-20s, late 20s, um, they're not putting up with that shit. <laughs> they're like, well, fuck this. I'm going to quit and I'm going to work somewhere else. And you're, we're even seeing that, you know, across industries and even into the military space. You know, for example, I just read that the Navy is saying like, we can't get people who are willing to spend six months aboard a ship if there's not like solid internet. Like, think about that. It's a total mic drop, by the way. Yeah, it is. <laughs> because <laughs> in the military, you just do what you're told. But if they're questioning it, I think that's kind of awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I'm all about all these, all these young kiddos <laughs> joining the workforce and shaking things up. It needs to happen. Definitely. And Lati, so do you want to add anything to the bitch about barriers to promotion? First, hi. <laughs> Sorry to throw you in there, but I know you always have great thoughts. Yeah, thanks. 
I, I do work with a lot of women leaders and with a lot of, of men who are really committed to gender equity in their homes and the workplace. But with both, we see that, of course, we have consistent gaps in what's the reality of the workplace versus what is the intended outcome. And listening to you speak, I remembered there's a Carnegie Mellon uh, study that was done relatively recently, which showed, for instance, speaking of promotions and hiring, that overqualified women and sufficiently qualified men were consistently employed at a wide variety of jobs and job descriptions. Hmm. And that gives you pause. In other words, in simpler terms, as a woman, you had to be way overqualified right. to compete for a job with men whose experience was just sufficient. Wow. And that opens an enormous topic, which is the topic of unconscious bias, I think. Mm -hmm. Because most of these hiring decisions are done under the impression of the hiring personnel that they are choosing based on excellence and based on merit. So we will very rarely meet an employer who actually employs with conscious bias, right? The thing is that most of the bias that we absorb in life is completely unconscious. And the way they will interpret merit, the way they will read a CV, the way they will think about a person deserving a promotion is affected in a way that they're not conscious of. So there's, as we try to exercise leadership and as I try to work with leaders across industries, one of the first steps is to become aware of your own bias, which is unavoidable. It's just not possible. Right. Grow up in today's world without carrying unconscious bias. So becoming aware of that is number one. And then recognizing it around you is number two. It will not necessarily help us solve things immediately. But when you realize that just by writing a female name on a CV, you get 80% less callback than with a gender neutral or male name, it will at least give you some empathy towards yourself and towards one's own feelings of failure. It will also make you perhaps aware of, of having to find alternate strategies. It's just the truth is not pretty. And knowing it can be seem more painful than, than being oblivious, but it does give us a whole new perspective of how we think about our careers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of hard to hear, right? That, um, you know, just by virtue of my anatomy or my gender identity that, you know, I'm going to have fewer opportunities or, you know, like for, you know, either being hired or being promoted or, you know, whatever it is. Um, yeah, that's, that's sobering. Well, it's one of the great adaptive challenges of our society. And like with all major adaptive problems that our societies face, there is a very big tendency of denying the existence of the problem as such. <laughs> we, dog agrees. I, I had to laugh <laughs> because that's the reality of our female lives, right? You right. have to tape your 
podcast, but you have to take care of the family and the dog as well. And there is no amount of, of faking it um, that we're spared of. It's true. I mean, and before we started recording, I just want to point out that both of you um, were talking about how, um, you know, spouses change plans at the last minute, you know, not necessarily on purpose, but it's just kind of understood that, you know, we as wives are, and, you know, are keepers of the home, right? Like it ultimately falls on us to pick up the slack if necessary. Um, and it's like, it's totally not fair <laughs> to, to put it mildly. It's interesting you say that. So, so putting kind of just occurred to me listening to both of you talk that, and what we were talking about earlier, as Anne said, is it makes me wonder, it's almost like this role, I think, that we feel like we have to assume as women or the caregiver, primary caregiver, that it's assumed that's the case at home, right? And that maybe our partner's, um, you know, needs or what they have going on takes precedence over ours. Maybe that's what's happening at work as well, right? There's this assumption that, well, you know, you're the woman, it's usually the woman, right? You have the cognitive load at home and at work and you have to juggle a million things and then things are going to fall to you and you might not get that promotion or you might not get these opportunities, but we still expect you to do all of this grunt work or be passed up for promotions. And I, I'm seeing a, a line drawn between the two that I didn't see before. Absolutely. And speaking of unconscious bias, there was another great body of research done around the division of household work and childcare, which was greatly inspired by the pandemic and by the lockdown and the prevalence of people working from home. So there was this interest of researchers on whether the work at home and homeschooling the kids will be more equally divided now that both partners are working from home and they're finally on the spot. Yeah. So the very interesting thing was that, yes, men worked more at home, shared more, but the load of women grew symmetrically, grew proportionally. So basically they will, they were still working proportionally more as they did. Um, furthermore, speaking of unconscious bias in hiring, there is a bias which has been found to affect partners. So around 20% male partners actually felt that uh, their wives were doing more at home during the pandemic when they were interviewed. It's only 20%. Um, 20% of men thought that they were carrying the main load of housework and homeschooling the kids. LOL. I'm speaking in, in traditional cis couples. And only 2% of women agreed. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Why does that not surprise me at all? Oblivious. Well, there is this, this bias. So, so it's not that the men we marry are, are out there to get us mostly, right? Mostly. <laughs> right. It, right. Is, it is the unconscious bias which makes us believe that we are the people that we want to be. Mm. 
Yes. There, there is a whole body of work around that as well. So, for instance, if you're raised with values of being honest, if you do some small dishonest thing, you will still continue to minimize it and think I'm a very honest person. While for another person, you would immediately say, oh, that was dishonest. They are not honest as they're saying. So when it comes to gender equity, what has been found is that partners will often, male partners will think that they are sharing equitably because that's what they would like to do. But they are not quite going that last mile to achieve the, the equal division of labor. And, and the reasons are enormous, as you said, uh, Marcel, we are raised with a whole, this, this box of identities that we were discussing in the first episode. And we are taught very early on from the whole society around us, what are the expectations from women and from men. And our societies for the last few thousand of years have been built with women serving as a source of unpaid labor, right? That's the global economy currently, the very conservative estimate by UN women in, I think it was in 2020, the last number I found, was that the unpaid caregiving labor of women was a $13 trillion economy. Meaning that if you put the, the hundreds of top companies together in the world, they would still make less. That means that our world economy is $13 trillion short of compensating fairly for the work we do for free. Right? And in order, in order to justify that, we are taught to think of this word, work as without value. That's what we were also discussing in the first episode. It's like, she's a stay-at-home mom. We don't say she's a work-at-home mom. Yes, right? exactly. And that's the, you just reminded me too, Alexa, that when, like, much earlier in my career, you know, um, I think it seems like, I, but I believe I was um, pregnant with my first child. Two very senior women leaders in consulting said to me, well, you know, so-and-so was very successful and she's, you know, made things happen and gotten to this level, you know, and she had a child and she would bring her to work and all these things. But Nobody was saying to me, you're allowed to bring your child to your client site or to the headquarters office. And, and I know someone else actually who got very advanced in a prior, um, in my early 20s, in a job I had, who also was allowed to bring her baby to work under the desk and work with this baby. But it wasn't being allowed when I was at that point. So women... I'm seeing this disconnect, right? Because like you're saying, we grow up with these labels and identities and we learn from them. And then how do you untangle? How do you unlearn these things? Especially when you don't have women, you know, mentors that are giving you tangible ways that you can be successful and move ahead, but giving you solutions that no longer are permissible or in very rare cases, right, are permissible. So how do you untangle yourself from that, right? It's very difficult. I kind of, so as you both were talking, I'm thinking about like the cost of this like uncompensated economy, right? What if we were able to, you know, so look, we're not going to get paid for that work. Fine. 
let's deduct it from our taxes every year. What if we had a standard deduction and we, we could average out, you know, how much housework do I do a week? What would it cost for me to pay someone to do that work? And then subtract that from the family income. That would be fucking amazing. I mean, it's never going to happen because, you know, so many reasons. But, you know, I would think that would be a good solution. And it would also demonstrate it would be kind of top-down leadership from the tax code of all places that the work that you do is worth money. It's valuable. And here's the way we're going to show it. This is very interesting, Anna. I love this idea. And you've just reminded me, um, and Latitza, you might know more about this than I do, but I did hear from some diplomats of other non-U.S. countries that their governments actually pay it's sort of a similar concept, right? Like if the partner can't find work in a place that they move to, they will be compensated, you know, X percent or a stipend, given a stipend, essentially, if they cannot find work. So to me, that's similar, right? It's like crediting instead of deducting um, from your base amount. But that idea, I feel like some in practice might be doing something similar, but I would wish that that would become more widespread. Definitely, there there are technical solutions to this, and and taking the money out of the taxes, absolutely, it's it, it is a brilliant idea, and it should be valid. My calculation while uh, having a child while living in New York was that I made around hundred and fifty thousand dollars in in equivalent value versus hiring childcare and going out to work. So, so in America, what I'm seeing with a lot of my very educated clients, uh, women clients, is that very often they will have left uh, a career despite having, for instance, a PhD because the cost of childcare is so high right. yes. and the choice of childcare is so poor that basically they would be paying to work. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and that is a tragic situation. I really don't think that there is any country that can afford to have half of its people out of the workforce, like literally half of their top labor, half of their best brains not working. Absolutely. So, so that needs to change. But with, like with all change, the problem is not so much the technical one. Like we could find a way to compensate women. We could find a way to recognize that this is valid work. And what we are seeing is that in various professions like nursing, which started as an unpaid work of women, once it professionalized, once men started entering the profession, the wages started going up and the profession started being regarded better and, and achieving a higher st status. Um, but the adaptive problem is of course the losses even if it goes from the taxes. So suddenly, the can you imagine how much the, the budget would shrink for a country if it really compensated mothers for their unpaid work, which would be completely justified. But, but the immediate losses make it much easier to just proceed without trying to introduce change. And, and that's what 
I work a lot with on my clients when we identify adaptive challenges like this, when we try to think of long-term solutions, we basically try to focus on who's losing. You can't really get a valid solution until you identify who has to accept the loss, right? And we have been raised in the West in a, in a win-win culture, which is very deceiving because we are taught that everything is about winning when in fact loss and risk aversion are the biggest motivators. Speaking of unconscious bias, there's the loss aversion bias. So people will consistently choose to avoid losses over equivalent gains, right? There's no motivator as powerful as in fear of loss. I was recently in a panel discussion and kind of conference about war games. And I promise this is relevant. There were some wargaming experts um, talking about the purpose of a war game, right? It's basically like risk on steroids, right? You, you kind of, you try to figure out different avenues, but, but what kind of shocked me and everyone else in the room was that the goal is not to win the game because all that tells you is that under these particular set of circumstances with these particular set of variables, this game was winnable this one time, but it teaches you nothing. So the, the, the goal isn't to win. So it, even, even our, even the win-win concept, um, as you mentioned, Letitia, is like, it's a fallacy in and of itself. Like that's not even, that's not even something that, you know, military leaders care about. I mean, you want to win the war, right? You want to win the battle, but when you're learning, you know, if your goal is to learn about stuff and create opportunities and changes, um, winning is not the goal. And that's actually unhelpful to win. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Absolutely. And that's actually one of the reasons why when, when I work with my clients, we very often focus on mistakes and failures. That's where your learning lies. That's where you can find your behavioral patterns. That's where you can find your hidden biases. And that's where you can improve. Studying somebody else's successes will only get you that far. Right. It's nice inspirational reading for the morning, making you feel good, looking into your own failures, even being able to name them as failures takes a lot because we have been really taught by our culture to shrink away from any kind of failure, but there's no learning without it. And if we look at how we teach our kids in school with the grades, it really is the main place where we reinforce this fallacy of, of a win-win culture. Like we train kids to bring the best grade, but we disregard that when this one kid comes home with A and, you know, summa cum laude, he just, with a 99 or 100% test, he just made the other 29 kids in the class look bad. There are 29 sets of parents whose kid came home with a grade telling that they're not smartest in the class or they didn't prepare best for the test. And there will be 29 sets of parents pushing back on their kids and saying, 
how could this kid do better than you? Yeah. And that's, we're then surprised that our kids with the best grades will never be the most popular kids. I recently like listened back to our episodes from season two, Marcel, because there's so much great stuff in there. But I'm now thinking about the episode, the guest we had um, when we had Danielle Joyton, and she talked about how you should lean into your successes and not your failures. But I think this conversation is almost like tying all of this up in a nice little cognitive bow for me, because in order to be able to lean into your strengths, you have to know what your weaknesses are. And so there is a value in learning those weaknesses and knowing what you're not good at, right? Just like you're talking about, Latif, like it's it's like the learning part is the important part. So then you can make it like a, a conscious decision about what you want to focus on and what's, you know, what's important for you personally. And maybe that's, maybe you, we could extrapolate that to kind of like leadership in the workplace overall. Like maybe companies should lean into the things that they're good at and recognize the failure, like call out the failure, but then, you know, maybe set that aside. Like maybe they're never going to be good at that thing that they're clearly not good at. <laughs> maybe they should focus on things that they're better at. You know, the funny thing, Anne, is I don't think that people really fail because they are not good at something. Like you will rarely see someone who's not good in math going into accounting. <laughs> it's, it's really not very often. But where we fail is when we bring this box of identities and values and convictions with us, in the workplace, and we are not aware of a lot of what we're carrying. And we keep attracting the same kind of conflicts, uh, choose making the same kind of choices, even if on the surface they might seem different to us. And so, so part of the sense of looking into these failures is that very often things that seem like big, unsurmountable failures for people, when we really deeply unpack them, they will find a thread connecting them. Like, for instance, I had a, a client, actually a student, who um, had a pattern of not being able to connect or to pay attention to people who were junior to him, people with lesser authority. And that served him great in his career. Like he was always connecting upward, 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 doing great with the CEOs, with the presidents. So he came to a level below and he was stuck there because he became irrelevant. Like suddenly you're, you're middle-aged and the young kids are bringing in all the knowledge, right? And you have to be able to learn and to connect throughout a corporation. You have to be able to connect below and up. So, so there were no more people above him left to connect to. Like, there, there was a very small group and he was founding, he finding himself isolated in one after other corporation. And the moment we could unpack that, like who would have thought, he was in the right industry. He was set up for the success and he couldn't understand why he was never becoming the CEO. And once he could understand that, his career skyrocketed. So, so there is a lot about understanding our failures and, and usually it's, it's seemingly small and meaningless things and errors that keep us from achieving our full potential. 
And that's that's so fascinating because, right, it's even like you could get all the training in the world about being a C-suite executive or, you know, a leader or moving up to those levels. And yet that would not even be defined as an issue, like you said, unless you really unpack that. And I think speaking of failure, it also brings us back to the bias, right? Because those are things you need to learn from and, you know, recognize that you have those biases. Maybe it's not, failure is not the correct term, but it's, it is those weaknesses, right? That's producing this unconscious bias. And if you can't see those and those are blind spots for you, then you're not going to be able to get farther. So I agree. You have to be aware of what those are. Yeah, and it's important to empathize with oneself. Like it's not bearing unconscious bias is unavoidable. It's not that we need to feel bad for it. But the idea is to gain more freedom, more freedom to act through knowing yourself ultimately, right? I think that's a good point. And I, I do feel like I do feel like in our country there is this like if you're not good at something you know, if, if you're, if, if you're failing at something, like you're supposed to feel bad about that thing. Like we, we're supposed to internalize those failures and it's not helpful. Um, especially when we're talking about sensitive things like, you know, for, for example, unconscious racial bias, biases, um, you, you want your, you know, our instinct to say, well, I'm not a racist, like I'm a good person. Um, and like to, to kind of get over that mental hurdle of saying like, okay, like uh, there is like, you know, racial bias there. Like, I don't, I don't have to feel bad about it, but I should do something to correct it and make it better because it affects other people. Yeah. I think the moment where we should really feel bad about it is the moment where we choose to not do something about it. Right. Right. No, I think that's, I, I don't, for me, that's like a very positive spin, like on, you know, being able to confront some of these things that maybe we, we, we unconsciously kind of shy away from or subconsciously shy away from because we're afraid it's going to make us not feel good about it. Absolutely. Ourselves. And that connects again to this bias of trying trying to be the person that we want to be without doing the necessary steps, believing that we already are. Right. That's the easy way. Don't be lazy, guys. Like, do the fucking work. <laughs> I think, just to sum it up. <laughs> well, I think it helps if people realize that since the world is set up a certain way, it's impossible to grow up without some sort of internalized, unconscious gender and racial bias, probably. Yeah. And and once we decide to do something actively about it, once we decide to notice our own behaviors and, and the actual outcomes of our actions, that, that can really shift things. And it's not limited. And I'll, I'll take the gender example here. For instance, gender bias is not limited to men. The unconscious bias has been proven to favor men gender-wise, even with women who identify as feminists. Right. So 
for instance, there, I, there are numerous studies which I could quote here, but from uh, starting with judging a female voice as less trustworthy when reading news, um, from students being given the same online courses, but being told that they were conceived by a male versus a female lecturer and consistently grading less if it was a female name on the course. Um, and it was done by women too, right? So when we as women, when we start being aware of our own behaviors, for instance, where do we look when we stand in a group with men and women, whom will we interrupt? Whom are we looking at more? When we take our phone, was it when a woman was speaking or a man? Those are the small telltale signs of, of cognitive bias and nobody's spared. And for instance, speaking of women mentors who, who told you to bring the baby and put it under the table and so on. So, so usually the, the women who, who entered first in male-led companies and professions and corporations very often internalized this bias and saw themselves as an exception and internalized women's lower value. And that's where you'll see the first generation of women leaders very often having all male teams to support them and wor preferring working with men and not supporting women. And that's where this myth comes that women are awful to women at the workplace. But what we are seeing is that already in the second generation of women, we are, we are gaining more consciousness. We see women mentoring women. And the moment we become conscious of our biases, we can, we can start doing that too. And that's where change happens. It takes a million hands to push change. Nobody can push and shove change down people's throat. And that's a million times true also for racial bias. Everybody has to do their bit. And I like, I like that because that means there isn't like this one, like silver bullet answer. It means that all of the little things that we do every day matter. Yeah. And we're all called to exercise leadership in our lives. And we start with these things. We go out to our workplace. We go out into our communities aware of how we act and how our actions may differ versus uh, across gender, class, uh, race, and we try to make it a better and more equitable place by first being aware of ourselves before we preach to others and then helping others realize that there's a leadership role for everyone in facilitating positive change in any society. I think that's, I mean, that's so important. And I just keep the term self-awareness keeps coming into my head because that's really what it is, right? It's in the workplace and in your personal life, having the self-awareness to be able to just recognize when you are exercising or thinking of exercising those biases and to whatever it might be and thoughts about gender, thoughts about race, and then at least stopping yourself to question what you're doing or check with somebody else to see what their opinion is, that's the path to change. And we just need more people to do that. Right. Yeah, I'll, I'll share my own, I'll, I'll air my dirty laundry here. So, <laughs> so the first time I heard about this, you know, I thought that's, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not gender 
biased at all nonsense. And the next day already, I was at a conference listening to three speakers. And on the fourth, I took out my phone. And in the middle of taking out my phone, I realized it was a woman speaking. She was the first woman speaker of the day. And when I made myself put the phone down and listen, she was actually a fantastic speaker. Wow. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> That's in yourself. <laughs> that's great. And so, yeah, I think that's uh, that's the reason we're doing this, right, Marcel? Like we're, we want to be, we want to give voice to these kinds of conversations that maybe people aren't having or hearing. Um, and maybe because we're all awesome, people will listen to us and say, fuck yeah, like I should pay attention to my own shit and like work on my own shit. And that's important. And what I do, you know, what I, my little day-to-day interactions make the difference because that's going to affect how other people act and it'll, you know, it'll all spiral around um, and connect to everything else. Just like a, like a little emotional ecosystem. Totally. That's what actually I would like people to understand that that's, a bit of a barrier calling what I do adaptive leadership because so many people will confuse leadership with being in a role of authority, Mm -hmm. being a CEO, being a director. But leadership really is, as we said, helping your community, country, family, any group of people move forward in positive change and accept this positive change. And there's a leadership role, there's space for leadership in every person's life. And and once people I work with realize this, their satisfaction in life and workplace usually improves dramatically because it it brings us from a disempowered place to to a really powerful place where we matter and we do matter. I love that. Wow. This has been such a great conversation. I was going to say the same thing. And that's an excellent way to end is to remind people that what you do matters, (laughs) what you think matters, and you do have the power of leadership, no matter what gender you are, what race you are, what religion you are, whatever you have in your, in society and in the world, it all, it all connects guys. And this is not some hippy dippy shit. Like we're all very smart women, and I don't think any of us have walked around barefoot in a field. I mean, I haven't. Maybe you guys have. But. <laughs> Even if we had, it wouldn't disqualify us from having some very valid thoughts. I would say most of the exactly. Greek philosophers walked barefoot in the field. <laughs> exactly. But the fact that you need to say this know, also right? shows that you're aware of of the bias, right? Yep. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. It's all over well, the place. All, yep. All over the place for sure. Well, thank you, Lachitza, for coming on with us again. It's been such a pleasure having you. And um, if you can tell us where we can find you, we'll also include it in the notes. Yes. Of course. I'm I'm on LinkedIn. It's, you can perhaps link it in the show no- notes and Everyone with any questions is welcome to contact me. I'm on leaderadaptive.com is my webpage. And we are starting some awesome online courses also. And also we do individual work 
with leaders um, of people willing to lead in their communities at any level and with some awesome organizations and you can sign up for the newsletter and find out more. Awesome. Thank you. Everyone should definitely do that like immediately. <laughs> you will learn Thank so much. Thank you so much. much for having me. It's always, always a pleasure talking to you and following your work. Thank you so Thank much. You. Well, it's been another great episode, Marcel. I What a great kickoff to uh, our first episode of season three. Um, and we look forward to talking, uh, talking to everyone soon. Bye. The Career Bitches are eternally grateful to our producer, Joe Tropea at Hari Kaver Productions, based in beautiful Baltimore City, for his bullshit-free feedback and constant support. We would also like to thank Micro Kingdom for their musical genius in providing our theme music. You can check out more of their extra cognitive spiritual magnetism at www.microkingdom.com. A new episode of Career Bitches drops every Monday morning to start your work week. And you can listen to us bitch on demand on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you find your podcasts.